whatever that percentage is at is obviously you know what people are trying to kind of bicker about now but like you reduce it to the point where you can like i said mitigate whether you're planting trees or like capturing it and storing it and things like that one still includes carbon being around and one completely eliminates it you are listening to the siemens energy podcast series the energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide, and at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Today, we have Sean McMahon, creator, producer, and host of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod, which, much like this podcast series, offers an inside look at the people, technologies, and trends that are powering the energy transition. Hi, Sean, and welcome. I'm so excited to be talking to you today because I know you've been covering the renewables industry for quite some time. And what I'm interested in finding out right away is with all the technical and new renewables conversations that are going on, there seems to be a lot of room for misunderstanding about renewables. So how do you navigate those various narratives out there and properly inform yourself and your listeners? Yeah, well, first of all, Amy, thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to, to talk to you today. Uh, as you mentioned, we've been covering renewables for a, a number of years now. Um, and one of the things I've noticed when I first started covering the sector uh, was that a lot of the language and a lot of the terminology that some of the industry ins- industry insiders use just flies right over the head of, I think, their target audience. You know, And if we're trying to appeal to you know voters out there and consumers out there to try and make this energy transition a reality, um, there's room for improvement in, in, in the way things are being communicated. Yeah. And talking over people's heads, I think, tends to come into the forefront from time to time. So I think a podcast like yours and and this podcast, it's really a way to inform people about what the messages really are and how they're impacted by those at the more granular level. Do you find that true as well? Yeah, I really do. I think, uh, you know, my background is I spent a dozen years or so covering Wall Street, right? And some of the derivatives and the complex things like swaps and things that you know kind of contributed to the crash and um what i found was interesting is in that space a lot of these things and a lot of these acronyms and stuff that people use that's almost intentional right they're not trying to let you know every voter out in america know what they're talking about whereas then when i flipped over to the energy side and, and we're talking about trying to stand up you know all these renewable energy sources whether it's a wind farm or a solar farm and things like that you know the developers of things actually are trying to get people on board who don't know anything about it. They are trying to bring them into that conversation. And yet they're still talking in, you know, these acronyms and terminologies that that just don't work. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of examples. Um, and I think that, you know, right from the very basics of this thing, one of the things I, I find interesting is that there's still all this conversation in watts, right? We're talking kilowatts, megawatts, gigawatts, and things like that. Um, you know, I, I often think of that old bit that Jay Leno used to do on TV where you'd have the, the sidewalk, you know, interviews. And I think if you walked up to, you know, 10 or a hundred people on the sidewalk and asked them, you know, how many kilowatts they use in their home or whatever a year, they wouldn't be anywhere near it. Right. And I think even some of them, you say, what's bigger, a megawatt or a gigawatt? I'm not sure they'd all get it right. You know? And so, you know, you're talking about folks who maybe they're familiar, they're familiar with gigawatts is from back to the future, right? And they're waiting for a lightning right. to strike the clock tower. So they're not really figuring <laughs> out how that translates to powering the refrigerator or powering their computer. Right. 
So that's very interesting. The acronyms, I think, are, are something that a lot of people probably would be best to learn because they're certainly going to impact us as we move forward with uh, embracing renewable energy. And uh, I think a lot of people are realizing now that that's something we, we need to do on a, on a quicker pace than we've been doing it in the past. So those acronyms, I think, will come into play even more so. Do you have any other examples of where you think the conversation is misleading or maybe not clearly understood among the consumers or among the general public? I think the bigger picture where everyone would benefit from kind of being updated on where things really stand is the conversation about kind of, you know, there's a lot of talk now about net zero, right? And a lot of these goals are based on trying to get to, you know, 50% of our 2005 levels by 2035 or 2050, things like that. But nowhere can you find out where we are now, right? We don't track mm -hmm. that now. You know, like every day you turn on the newscast, you're going to hear what the Dow Jones did today, right? But I mean, right. I looked into it just for the show. Like, I think something around 50, somewhere around 56% of people own stocks, right? So you're really, you know, about half the population. And yet we're giving that billing on every newscast in America, right? Everyone's getting that True. information. Net zero, I mean, it, there's nowhere you have to really go digging and digging to find out where are we on that goal, right? So in the U.S. here, we're trying to hit, you know, I guess the Biden administration said 50 to 52 percent, which I thought was a fuzzy goal anyway. But like we're trying to reach that by 2035. And where are we? You know what? And so I had to dig in and find it. And it's like, OK, well, we're we're 13 percent. You know, we, we reduced emissions 13 percent, you know, relative to 2005. Right. Which if your goal is 50 percent, then you've made it 26 percent of the way to your goal, which is pretty good. Right. <laughs> but it would be great if we had a periodic, whether it's weekly or monthly or even daily uh, report on, on where we where things stand, you know, on, on a push to reach net zero in our, and reduce our carbon emissions. And if we did that on a more consistent basis, weekly, daily, whatever, do you think people would pay more attention to it or would be more interested or, or would get more involved at a personal level if they knew what those percentages and numbers were? I think so. I think it'd be an increase in the fundamental understanding of what we're trying to do and, and where we are. And like I said, going back to the stock market, like, okay, maybe only 56% of people have stocks, but everyone kind of knows what a stock is, right? And everyone knows that, you know, Apple's worth $3 trillion now, right? Like, <laughs> That kind of thing. And they might not have to be participating in transition, but they would know the terms and references and things like that where we're talking about. Where they're you know, get back to the conversation about watts. You know, maybe it's that. Mm -hmm. Or or maybe it's okay, like, you know, that solar farm is huge. Like, cause it's, you know, they know what a watt is. So when they see how many megawatts a farm is, they can actually kind of understand, like, wow, that thing is powering a whole city or that thing is powering a little small town. You know, like there's just the baseline understanding I think would would improve. Well, my next question kind of gets back to what you were touching on just a moment ago with the political arena that we're all a part of right now. And um, the, both nationally and globally, um, here in the U.S. and around the world, uh, renewables has been at the forefront of conversations on both sides of the political aisle. Do you find the reality of renewables to agree, or does it run counter to such political takes? I think it runs very, very counter to the political takes. And, and the example I always mm -hmm. give people you know, if I'm at a dinner party or something like that is, you know, the three states in the U.S. that produce the most wind energy, Texas, Oklahoma, and Iowa. Right. But if you listen yeah, to the political right. discourse, which are, I mean, uh, Texas is pretty red. I mean, Austin's a little bastion of, of blue in there, but like, you know, it's a red, those are three red states. Right. And if you listen to the political discourse, you'd think that, oh my gosh, like they would hate renewable wind there. I mean, Oklahoma is obviously also huge in the oil and gas side, as is Texas. And so, people don't understand that 
in these states where you picture things being, you know, Republican or red, or what do you want to say it? There's massive amounts of renewable energy being generated, right? And then, and then even in Utah, they have one of the one of the leading, you know, green hydrogen facilities is in Utah, another red state. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I think the discourse is is not really matching with what's literally happening on the ground and in the ground. That's interesting. And and I think you've mentioned before that Tesla is setting up a manufacturing site in the red state as well. Is that correct? Yeah, you're seeing a lot of uh, big corporations uh, invest huge dollars in ma- on the manufacturing side and things like that. Um, and yeah, like I said, red states, there's a lot of battery factories being built, uh, places like Louisiana, Alabama, Texas. Um, so I think that there's just the, the investment dollars are not matching the political discourse and the political, yeah. you know, what am I trying to say? The, the, the political punchlines and political slogans right. in these same states like are so anti, but the reality is people are, people are employed by, the, by these industries in those states. And so I find it, I'm waiting for that to catch up. I'm waiting for, you know, the people who are bringing them a paycheck from a renewable energy firm in, say, Oklahoma to finally stand up and be like, hey, quit bashing wind energy. Like, <laughs> it puts food on the table in my house, you know, like, so th- there's room there. <laughs> Yeah, the disconnect there is is quite startling as as you describe it, and I think that conversation does need to happen because there is more support for renewables than I think people really imagine. They think that there's if you're a red state, you don't support renewables. If you're a blue state, you do, uh, and I think that's a common misconception. Do you agree? Absolutely. I think that even folks within those states might think that they, you know, don't like renewables, but then I. Th- they're just not really that familiar with their energy bill, perhaps. <laughs> you know, I yeah, exactly. You know, I'm in. I live in Oregon, right? And we have a lot of renewables, but you know, we're not on the top of the country in terms of you know rankings. But I know that a lot of the energy that you know powers my home is coming from you know wind wind turbines, and you know we've got a lot of hydro here and things like that. So it would be pretty silly for me to turn around and be just totally anti renewables when, yeah, it's the stuff's actually powering my home. Well, on so many things, it would be great if the politicians kind of uh, paid attention to to this sort of thing and uh, didn't toe the line, as they say, for, uh, from the red and the blue. But we'll see if that happens. Let's hope it does. Yeah, we we can hope. So, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned before that decarbonization is not the same thing as being carbon neutral. Are there other terms often used when discussing energy that most people don't know? I mean, we've talked about kilowatts, megawatts. Um, but are there other things out there? I mean, what is the difference between decarbonization and carbon neutral? I, I don't think a lot of people know the difference there. Yeah. I mean, basically decarbonization is when you're not using carbons, period, right? You're just eliminating okay. them all the way out. Whereas carbon neutral or even net zero, um, you know, people talk about net zero, but net zero is not carbon zero, right? And so carbon neutral and net zero are, you're still using carbon, but you're having either way to either capture it or mitigate it in some way. Right. So your carbon use doesn't go all the way down to zero. Whatever that percentage is at is obviously, you know, what people are trying to kind of bicker about now. But like you reduce it to the point where you can, like I said, mitigate uh, whether you're planting trees or like capturing it and storing it and things like that. So um, one still includes carbon being around and one completely eliminates it. Another term I think is broadly misunderstood out there is is rate payer. Right. When we're talking about, yeah. you know, bills and things like that, a lot of executives like to use that word, rate payer. Rate payers are going to do this. I don't think a lot of those rate payers know that they're rate payers, right? Um, I think that term needs to be changed. I think you've got you to be using terms like consumers or, you know, if we're talking about something from a political angle, use the term voters, right? Because I, I don't think that 
everyone out there who is a ratepayer knows that they are. So when you're trying to appeal to ratepayers and tell them that there's something positive for ratepayers, let them know you're talking about them. You know, use the term like consumers. That way they know that, hey, this thing that's being proposed is going to save me some money. This this wind farm or this solar farm out there is going to is going to make make it easier for me to power my home. Not this mysterious ratepayer person. You also mentioned and have talked about the uh, goals that are out there among various countries and various regions around the globe. Do you personally believe that those goals are actually attainable or do you think they're just being thrown out there and not really given the uh, thinking behind them that should be to be able to reach those goals in the near future? People are finally getting tired of the goal that's 30, 40, 50 years out there. You know, Um, you know, there's, you know, COP26, you know, at the end of last year, there was a lot of protests just being like, enough of that, you know, I'm tired of all that. What, what are we going to do now? Right. And, um, you know, I mentioned the, the Biden administration's goal of, you know, reducing the 50 to 52%. And I thought that was just hilarious, <laughs> quite honestly, <laughs> in addition to being a nightmare for like journalists like you and I have to write headlines and you have to include that from 50 to 52%, right? That, why make us add that? But also, and more the more, the reason I thought it was funny, it was like, are you telling us we're so good at hitting these goals <laughs> that you can throw this lawn dart in there and be like, by 2035, we're going to reduce within 50 to 52%. That's funny. And also is like, why put a cap on it? Aren't we trying to get- Exactly. Yeah. What are you going to do in uh, December of 2034 when we're at 53%? Are you going to like, oh, ramp up the emissions. We, we overshot. It's like, <laughs> why put a ceiling on it? And no idea. There must be some smart people in the Biden administration who really thought a lot about how they were going to message this thing. And I have no idea of why they messaged it that way. <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of people wonder where those numbers came from as well and wonder if they can be attained or if they're just pie in the sky at this point. Yeah. I think, I mean, what we're seeing obviously on Capitol Hill right now, right? They can't even get the Build Back Better Act up and running. And right. so, and the clock's ticking, you know? And so, you know, we're, like I said, we're, what are we, 13 years away? from 2035, yeah. you know, and the, and you want to crank it up from 13% to 50% by then. And you can't even get, you know, someone in your own party to help you, you know, get this thing going. And then you got to build these farms and you got to, particularly the offshore wind farms, the, the offshore wind farms is the ones I'm really kind of thinking those don't, those don't go up quickly. <laughs> you know, those take a long yeah, time. Exactly. And so if you're counting on that to be online quick enough by 2035, um, some of them will be, but I, I'm not really sure. Um, the U.S. should be banking on those, you know, being in the water and, yeah. and, and operating. Well, I think the technology and the innovation that's going on within the industry on the side of renewables is moving as quickly as it can, more quickly than it has in the past. And I think that's a good thing, as well as people understanding now with these natural disasters that have occurred, that climate change is real and we have to do something to address it. In your conversations with experts and opinion leaders out there, are you finding that there's a little more optimistic tone that's coming through on where we're headed? Yeah, there certainly is. And I think also that's followed by by dollars. I mean, we're seeing a lot more right. investment dollars, clean technology, things like that, drawing, you know, billions of dollars, you know, whereas before it was kind of like a, a crazy, you know, Dr. Brown from Back to the Future type experiment thing. But, <laughs> but you know, now there's, you know, there's a lot of venture funds out there that are really chasing these these clean technology solutions. And, and that obviously is, you know, translates to more, you know, more people coming into the industry better paid people coming in industry. You know, I think for a long time, um, the reason the oil and gas sector was, you know, so strong is that really like if you were some kind of geologist or chemist, like 
guess who paid the, the highest salaries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so at some point they were just luring people away. Now you have clean energy firms that can kind of compete a little bit on, on salary and, and that's going to matter in the long run too. Well, that's good news, I think, for everyone. So as we wrap it up here, I want to ask you finally, what is an opinion that you hold regarding renewable energy or the transition that many in your field would disagree with? I have my concerns about offshore wind and obviously it works in many places around the world. Uh, my concerns are, there's many reasons here in the U.S. Um, one, you know, can we get them done? Like, I, I'm starting to feel like be one of those people who's like, does America build big things anymore? Like, can we get that done? Yeah. Or are we so just politically gridlocked that we can't make it happen? But also just on the technology side of it, right? I mean, I did some research and I was trying to figure out, you know, when, when the last hurricane came slamming into New Orleans. And I was like, if there was a wind farm out there. Yeah. Are these wind farms ready to handle a category five, you know, and, and yeah. be all right. And the only research I found, which was admittedly back from 2017, but they were like, Oh, most current offshore wind turbines can withstand a three, a category three hurricane, maybe a category four. Well, that that's problematic considering where the U S is trying to put these farms, right? Not only in the Gulf, but on the Eastern seaboard, right? A lot of hurricanes coming up that coast these days, you know? And so, you know, conversely, California and the and the West Coast is where they're having the most trouble getting them promoted and built and built up. But that's actually might be where they'd be the safest, you know. So and there's other complications there. I mean, the Jones Act is in the way. So you got these boats that, you know, are legally allowed to do the building of those turbines. And, you know, we're gonna need a regulator to step up and either, you know, you know, roll that back or just make it known that they're not gonna enforce it or they'll enforce it and the fine will be a dollar, you know, something like that. Yeah. So it's not because that's just impossible to get those things built up with, without enough, enough ships. So that's something I think that, you know, within the industry, I think there's a lot of folks who are really, really bullish on offshore wind. And, um, I don't even hear people talking about the hurricane part of it either. Like I'm trying to like ask people, you know, reach out to people at Vestas and all these manufacturers and be like, Hey, can you guys withstand this? And I'm sure they're thinking of it, yeah. but like, what have they tested? Um, so the nightmare scenario is we go through all this trouble to get these wind, offshore wind farms built, right? You get the legislation passed, you get the technology installed out there in the ocean, and then a hurricane comes along and all the cable news channels are just looping footage of this busted wind turbine, you know, in the middle of the ocean. And that just sticks in people's right. heads. And we're talking about communication, right? That's kind of what the conversation we're having today is about. And that image of, of a busted up turbine in the water will set things back pretty far. So that needs to be avoided. So that's my concern. Uh, and I'm not sure how many other folks in the industry feel that way. Interesting. Yeah, that is a, a certainly an angle that I don't think a lot of people have thought of when they think of offshore wind. So I'm, I'm glad you raised that. Now, uh, as we finish up here, I'd like to let our listeners know where they can find you, uh, where they can find the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. Can you uh, give us a web address or tell us where they can learn more from your perspective? Yeah, sure. So the Renewable Energy Smart Pod is on all your major podcasting platforms, you know, Apple, Spotify, Google, whatever you listen to. We also have a newsletter, a daily newsletter, uh, the Renewable Energy Smart Brief, and you can just Google that and sign up for it. And uh, that's kind of a daily aggregated newsletter of everything going on in the industry. And then those are the two places where we're trying to keep people informed about, about what's going on in this industry as we try to navigate the energy transition. That's terrific. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean. Thank you very much. This is fun. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at siemens-energy.com forward slash podcast. 
Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials.